So can I welcome everybody to uh, this particular uh, Be Thinking talk. This evening we're going to be looking at the subject of the resurrection, or more fully the resurrection of the Son of God. And uh, uh, I'm going to be giving a talk this evening. I hope I will be able to speak clearly enough for everybody to understand. But there are some technical words. Uh, Some of them are uh, explained as we go through. And if you want to ask a question, that will be possible as well. So I'm going to talk about the resurrection of the Son of God, which uh, obviously is a topic in the Bible. But I'm going to particularly refer to this book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, uh, a book by N.T. Wright. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's useful for standing on to get to high shelves as well. Um, so I have, uh, I have actually read all the way through this, um, and I'm going to refer to it. Can I say that I don't uh, automatically agree with everything that uh, Tom Wright has said? In some things I think he's mistaken. But uh, this book, uh, nearly everything he says in this, I, I found very, very helpful. So um, there's uh, Tom Wright. I was uh, lent this book um, that Brian lent me, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, and that uh, too is, uh, is very, very helpful. There's also a very, some very helpful talks on, uh, on the web, on the Be Thinking website, www.bethinking.org. Uh, some very good talks, including one by William Lane Craig. Okay, I'm going to be thinking about the apologetic power of the resurrection, by which I mean uh, it's an argument for the defence of Christianity. An apologia doesn't mean I'm sorry for something, Uh, I apologise, it means I, uh, in this sense, defending Christianity with a strong argument. Negatively, the resurrection, if it is not true, then Christianity is itself false. If somebody can prove, demonstrate that the resurrection is false, mistaken, then Christian faith is demolished at one go. In fact, uh, one of the leading early Christian missionaries, uh, Paul, said, in so many words, if Christ is not raised, our preaching, our message is useless, and so is your faith. So it's absolutely crucial. Negatively, Christianity would be destroyed. Positively, if it is true, then it has very strong implications for the identity of Jesus. It doesn't automatically tell us something, but it leads us to an understanding of who Jesus is. So uh, if it's true, those implications can't be avoided. It also positively um, has implications for the truth of his message. Uh, If the resurrection happened, it says that the things that Jesus said um, also are true. It has strong implications for the existence of God. So it would show that we live in a world which, to say the least, has got supernatural things happening in it which come from some supernatural source. Again, it doesn't follow just straight away. There's a 
train of sequence of ideas, but it does have implications in that way. And it has those implications whether we like it or not, and whether we feel like it or not. So the resurrection is um, a fact, or I'm saying it's a historical fact, which is there whether we like it or not, whether we feel it's true or not. And that's helpful for Christian people because sometimes their faith goes up and down depending on their circumstances, depending on how they're feeling, depending even whether it's a sunny day or not. And uh, this is true no matter how we feel. Even at our worst moments as Christians, um, here is something that actually stands. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's a bedrock for Christian experience. Uh, okay. Now, uh, the, because it's so important, the resurrection uh, is objected to. Now, let me first define what I mean by resurrection. And this is one of the things in which uh, Tom Wright's book is very, very helpful because he has a strong definition of resurrection. Uh, and his definition is, and I think this is a correct definition, this is something after physical death, after being dead, to become physically alive again. So he's not talking about life after death, you know, floating round um, out-of-body experiences, ghosts, spirits. That's a different thing. This is life after that, physical life after being dead. So, do you see there's a, an important statement there about what resurrection actually is? It is becoming physical again. So, having hands and uh, skin and uh, a body. So, people object and they say that it is intrinsically improbable. Statistically, it's a very rare event and therefore uh, that's an objection. They say it is scientifically impossible. So, this cannot be investigated in some scientific ways. You can't reproduce this and test it all over again. Um, because of the unusual nature of it. So here's an objection, scientifically impossible. And people also say it is historically unprovable or unproven, and that does depend on what we mean by history. So there are some, some objections. And uh, Tom Wright, uh, in his book, deals with some more focused theological objections, which are more the ones I'm going to focus on this evening. So here is a resurrection, sorry, here is an objection that in the Jewish context in which this first happened, uh, in the context in which Jewish people saw the things to do with Jesus, they used the word resurrection in Greek, anastasis, mm -hmm. and it is said that they could have meant a variety of things by that. So there's one objection which uh, we will look at during the course of this talk. Uh, here's a second theological objection which says that the Apostle Paul, when he uses the word 
resurrection is meaning something spiritual. He does actually use the expression spiritual body. And this objection says, well, he means a ghostly thing, a spirit uh, sort of thing. And here's another uh, objection that the earliest Christians used the language of resurrection, anastasis, to mean Jesus is in heaven. Uh, he is uh, enthroned in heaven. He's uh, very important. Uh, we worship him. And they used language backwards and said, because that's who we believe he is, we will say that he is resurrected. And these objectors say that even when the idea of the empty tomb is used, it's not meant literally. And this sort of objection, uh, I think, was more common in the uh, um, mid-20th century. But anyway, here's what he's uh, saying. Um, in addition to that, it is objected that the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are late and they are inventions. So somebody used their imagination to uh, take a, a, an idea and enlarge it and make up stuff and write it down as Gospel. And uh, further objections that when people uh, in the Bible say they saw Jesus, what they really mean is they saw a vision of Jesus. So the seeings were subjective experiences only. So if you were to say that you could see the Virgin Mary standing there um, and the rest of us couldn't, then that would be a, an experience just of, for you. Um, and what these people are saying is that when in the Bible it says people saw Jesus or met Jesus, they mean they met him in their hearts, they met him as a hallucination, a fantasy or some sort of subjective experience. And lastly, uh, these objectors say um, categorically, whatever else it may mean, Jesus' body was certainly not raised from the dead. Okay, that's uh, the objections of these people. So I'll stop just there and say, does anything need to be clarified? Okay. Right. Before we go any further, uh, we need to think about the idea of a world view. Uh, a worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. And we take this worldview with us wherever we go, whatever we think about and talk about, we have basic presuppositions. So, um, for example, we might, uh, on a social level, uh, have a presupposition that everybody we meet in England is out to cheat us. Uh, so we would react in a certain way 
to everybody in England if that was our view or alternatively we might have the view that everybody in England is a, an English gentleman with a bowler hat who uh, is going to help us and uh, that would affect the way that we lived our lives. Now here of course is a little bit more profound than that. So if we think historically in European history the Enlightenment was that uh, period in which people began to think in a new way before the Enlightenment there were uh, people believed that there were few secondary causes so for example if there was thunder and lightning people would say this is the hand of God and they wouldn't say God is using low pressure and high pressure and a cold front and a warm front and the structure of clouds they would just say this is directly the hand of God and you can actually see something of this in the writings of Martin Luther who believed in the existence of ghosts and demons in certain forests well rightly or wrongly but that's pre-enlightenment thinking in the time in which the Bible was written they had a world view, things they would assume they would assume that Yahweh, Jehovah is God that's taken for granted and also they would take for granted that the Bible uh, described his working in the world and that he had made promises to Israel about their peace uh, their living securely in the land and that at that time God's promises still had not been fulfilled and that would be their, uh, some of their assumptions as they looked around at the world uh, post enlightenment uh, people's assumptions would be that true freedom lies in removing God and the supernatural so that when we look at the world we exclude God we exclude the supernatural and only things that can be seen and measured are real as in mathematics, hard science, proving things, QED. And that is at least part of the view that most of us will have grown up with uh, and perhaps find rather difficult to get rid of in our thinking. Uh, a postmodern worldview would be slightly different. A postmodern worldview would accept that there can be isolated events but find it difficult to believe that this means anything in one big story that there's one meaning behind it all so as we come to this we have to be aware that we bring our own world view to all these things and uh, one other uh, NB we shall use the word history uh, if you come to look at this book you'll find that he has quite a bit about the idea of history as a way of finding things out and we use the word historical in slightly different ways which we might as well just notice as we go through uh, a historical event can simply be an event even though nobody saw it happen so the death of the last pterodactyl assuming you believe in pterodactyls 
we presume that the last one of them must have died sometime none of us saw it, it's not documented but we would say that happened in history and is therefore a historical event even though no one saw it we also use the word history or more precisely historic to mean a significant event so in English history 1066 is a significant event why is 1066 a significant event in English history that's the Battle of Hastings it's when um, England was invaded by the Normans uh, which were uh, sort of French people um, historical can mean a provable event again like in maths or science so the holocaust is a provable event because people were there people have got evidence people have written down their testimony and therefore uh, it is a, a foolish thing and a perverse thing not to believe it however Robin Hood um, we would say is probably not historical in this sense that nobody actually could prove his existence um, doing history being interested in history writing, talking, going over the events of the past um, that too can be referred to as history or something that's historical or having historical interest and again the meaning is slightly different so the 4th of July apparently is important for some people I'll put that there for Brian because he could have told us what that was there for but um, so for, for the USA that's the um, Independence Day isn't it, am I right? I don't know who they're independent from but I expect somebody will tell me um, so you have historical novels uh, so that they're to do with just history as a general thing local history, we use the word in that connection without trying to prove anything or um, I'm just that there are different sort of levels of expectation and people talk about the quest for the historical Jesus um, which is just there there is a, something called the Jesus Seminar in the United States and they use historical in a very narrow sense indeed uh, combining three and four that things must be provable in a very reductionist sense they won't uh, take anything you know for example if it was local history they wouldn't believe it unless you could really find two or three people who could really um, give you exact confirmation of shall we say when Lewis Castle was built or something like that so uh, the quest for the historical Jesus or it uses the word history it uses it in a very narrow sense and people sometimes use that when they're talking about the resurrection um, they expect uh, something to be proved in a mathematical or um, scientific way which uh, is not the usual way in history anyway so there's a little um, note on that in my personal view there is a sort of spiral at work here that you can start on the outside and say well I don't know really how much I believe about Jesus 
but I certainly believe that he existed and then you can take that honest step and say I wonder what sort of person he was what sort of things he said uh, what sort of things he did and you can pick up on that and you say well he was really more remarkable than I thought he was and then you can move in a little bit and say he was actually extremely special and you can move in a, a little bit further and say it says he rose from the dead it says he did miracles I do tend now to believe that it says that he rose from the dead and you can follow the spiral round in increasing certainty until you yourself might come to be a believer um, having started off as not a believer anyway that's a slightly different thing I'm going to look at the context uh, in which all this took place this is the context of proclamation so that when the first Christians said things about Jesus they said them using certain language believing that people would understand them in a certain way it's the context in which they proclaimed it's uh, quite often said that resurrection is like many other religions so the ancient context would be the source of parallels if there were any so if uh, resurrection ideas are copies of other ideas then the context uh, should provide them so we're talking about the, um, here the non-Jewish world, what the Greeks believed, what the Romans believed, and to a certain extent what the Egyptians believed. Now, um, in uh, Tom Wright's book, he goes into this in considerable detail. And it is without doubt the most tedious part of the book. Um, he, he, he has a chapter and verse on lots of things that the Greeks and the Romans believed. And I'll just summarise it by saying they believed lots of things but they did not believe in bodily resurrection. If you had said to one of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans uh, do you believe that a man dies and could possibly come back alive physically they would say well there's one thing I can tell you matey it won't be that. That certainly does not happen. Everybody knows that. If only it did happen, but it doesn't. But you may say, well, there are other things like it, aren't they? For example, their emperors were said to become God. There was the divinization of the emperors. But it wasn't ever said that they came back alive physically, apart from Nero. There was a rumor that Nero had come back, but that was a very odd sort of thing, not a regular thing. The emperors went to heaven and it was their souls that became God. And uh, Tom Wright says that in that ancient world death was uh, the realm of witless shadows in a murky world. So after death you might become a spirit or a ghost or a half a being or something like that but not raised from the dead. There are legends of dying and rising gods. Adonis, Persephone, corn kings, corn mothers. And sometimes these are referred to. But they are not human bodily resurrection. They're myths and stories to do with other worlds, to do with realms of fantasy. None of these people at all ever claim that human beings come alive again physically after death of all possibilities they would say 
unanimously, we all know that dead men do not rise. And that's why when the Apostle Paul went to the Greek um, centre of learning, they sneered at him. When they heard him talk about the resurrection of the dead, they sneered because they were saying, we're clever people, we've heard it all, we know resurrection from the dead just does not happen. There's the ancient context. Let's look at the Jewish context because the people who were writing about the resurrection of Jesus were writing in a Jewish context. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So, which Scriptures? So, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the book of Genesis, bodily death is the consequence of sin. So, Adam sinned, according to the book of Genesis, and therefore died. And that sets the agenda, that's the problem that God promises to solve. Uh, and from a very early stage, the idea that God can solve that problem um, is there in the background. So Hebrews 11 is a reference to Abraham, who was going to sacrifice his son Isaac and kill him, but he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead, or bring him back from the dead. Um, so that's at an early stage. So, I don't th uh, so Tom Wright is much more negative about that than I think he should be. I think that, that promise has been there. There were hints of this through the Bible. So Enoch, um, who I think is in Genesis chapter 5, was somebody who walked with God and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say very much more than that, it's just a hint. Elijah was taken into heaven um, in a whirlwind. So, he didn't die. In that sense, Job says things like, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will, in, in my flesh I will see God. Um, Psalm 16 is uh, um, quoted in the New Testament in this connection, and it says... My heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So no decay is envisaged in Psalm 16. Psalm 73 it says afterwards you will receive me to glory. Isaiah 52, 53 uh, is about a suffering servant who, although it doesn't um, specifically say he will rise from the dead, Yet, there is a jigsaw puzzle which includes the fact that he dies and includes the fact that he ends up being raised very high uh, and exalted. And how you put that together, well, uh, it's a hint of resurrection. Later on in the Bible, in Daniel, is uh, a specific reference which says... Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So it's difficult to see what that means if it isn't a, um, a reference to future judgment and resurrection. 
and that's a key um, paragraph uh, for later uh, and Ezekiel 37 <coughs> talks about uh, a vision of dry bones uh, dead bodies coming together uh, coming back to life again and it says that these dry bones are the whole house of Israel and it is coupled with settling Israel back in her land so again it's a hint it's rather perplexing how it all should be fulfilled but it does talk about bones coming to life physically and it links it with the promise of God to settle Israel in the land so there's uh, the Jewish scriptures so I'll stop there and ask if there are any anything you want to have clarified well I think I'm going to argue that the two things are the same that the promise of restoration to Israel is fulfilled in the resurrection and you've got two lines here that actually intersect in the end So, to summarise the Jewish context in this period that Jesus was in, which is called Second Temple Judaism, again, there were various ideas. Uh, so, the Sadducees, for example, said there is no resurrection. Uh, the Pharisees had a different view. They believed that there would be a final day of judgment resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So, that's what Martha says when Jesus asks her about her brother Lazarus and she says I know he will rise again at the last day and interestingly Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life and Jesus claims that he encapsulates in himself all that Martha could see God would do on the last day um, so this basically uh, when they're talking about resurrection they're talking about a one stage resurrection which is coupled with judgment so that's the context uh, let's look now at what uh, is said in the Bible and we'll look at what Paul says and we'll look at what the gospel says before we try and put it all together so Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, makes a statement which I've written out pretty much in full love sort of translated it myself I want to remind you of the good news I good news you good news to you because he uses the idea of gospel as a noun as a, and a verb and he says you received this and he uses a word which means to pass on a tradition uh, and I traditioned you I passed on to you as of first importance and then he says a, num a number of bullet points that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter then to the twelve after that to more than 500 most of whom are still living 
then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that uh, uh, is in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and there are a number of features of that which I'll draw attention to in a moment. But just notice this way he's done it as a formula. That something, that something, that something, and that something. It's got the appearance of a little formula uh, which has been concocted, which he's repeating, which they might almost have memorised. Uh, and that's, of course, the idea of a tradition, um, which uh, is the verb that's used. Uh, I've, here is something like a, um, a package which uh, I'm passing on to you and I want you to keep that package as it is and pass it on to other people. So uh, this is very early. It's 51 or 52 AD. You can date the letter from the things that happen in it. That's 21 years or so after the death of Jesus. Um, and by that time it is a tradition. It's, it's a fixed, non-negotiable tradition. In other words, the objection that this was made up later and read backwards into history doesn't fit the facts. It's already a fixed package that you're not allowed to add things to or mess about with. I tradition you, I hand this over to you, says Paul. Clearly, Jesus was believed to be genuinely dead. That's part of what's said. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And this is something that was capable of living eyewitness proof. So Paul does not say, I felt I saw Jesus and other people felt that they saw him. He says he was literally seen by Peter, by James, um, and at one point by 500 people at once most of whom are still living is what he said so he's as far as he's concerned this is something that you really could prove that you really could um, substantiate all you had to do was buy a ticket and go over um, over the Mediterranean and talk to these people so uh, it's like uh, Diego Maradona's Hand of God goal um, which uh, was, uh, I believe, in 1986 in, in the Football World Cup. Um, there are people sitting here who can remember seeing that. Um, so it's not, uh, you know, it might be, whatever it is, 21 years ago, but it's not so far away that nobody knows. You know, who knows whether that happened or not? Uh, there are people here who were alive to see it. It's that sort of distance to the resurrection from where Paul is, is writing uh, a little bit more on Paul, He's, he himself says that this marks out Jesus uh, as the son of God with power and also another key point is that this is the initial part of a two stage resurrection process that Jews believed in a one stage resurrection right at the end of the world but if this is true, it's actually a two-stage resurrection that number one, Messiah is raised and then stage two, the people that belong to him are raised. And that's the very point 
Paul goes on to make in 1 Corinthians 15 as first fruits and then following on from that something else a little bit like um, a snake getting through a bamboo fence first the head of the snake goes through then the rest of the body follows it's saying that if Jesus rose from the dead he's um, he experiences physical resurrection and the people that are joined to him his body as it were will in due course themselves experience resurrection and that two stage process is actually referred to in lots of places in the Bible for example Romans 8 the spirit if the spirit lives in you the spirit will give life to your mortal bodies that's the same argument and uh, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if this didn't happen then Yahweh the Lord God has not brought salvation he has not solved the problem he has not fulfilled his promises and Christian faith is a useless thing okay there's um, the resurrection and Paul we're going to look at the resurrection in the gospels and again there's a lot to be said about this but I'll just summarize some of these things one of the features of the gospel stories is that they are unpolished as you read them there are some of the references you find that uh, people have got room to object and to say it doesn't say that there it says that there there are two angels there but only one you know they obviously haven't got their act together and come up with a combined um, effort without any rough edges the stories show the mark of being unpolished they all talk about the empty tomb which again is an objection to the idea of just seeing Jesus in your heart well what happened to his body all the stories say they went to look for his body and it could not be found that the molecules of Jesus' body are nowhere to be found in this part of creation uh, they're somewhere else the empty tomb uh, the stories talk about angels they talk about initial misunderstanding by the disciples they talk about testimony from women who went to the tomb uh, there are sightings of the risen Jesus who seem to be the same and yet different that's a common feature in most if not all of the stories there is also a struggle to believe something so odd uh, in Matthew's Gospel it says that even when people had had several chances to see Jesus they some still doubted so the, the by, uh, these accounts are honest about how really difficult it was to believe this it's, it was so odd so strange and yet in all these we find people's lives were changed their minds were changed and their lives were changed so um, let's notice something about these accounts uh, some further strangely there are very few I think there are probably no biblical quotations that adorn the accounts if they were read backwards you would expect people to say and so was fulfilled and this reminds me of this and so on but that isn't the case um, again if it was being read backwards and written up later it's surprising that the gospel accounts contain virtually no mention of the general resurrection 
the risen Jesus seems different and yet he's a real human being uh, there are other accounts which say talk about a, a moving cross and Jesus head touching the sky a very extraordinary Jesus but the canonical gospels he's in some ways just very ordinary he can eat food, eat fish, he can stand and talk um, it's surprising that uh, women are put in the role of witnesses because in those days uh, women were not counted as uh, fully competent witnesses and I think uh, and uh, Tom Wright puts it this way if you wanted to explain things about Jesus if you wanted to be a propagandist you would not have told stories like this you would not have made it up that way you would have done a better job you'd have put something more polished it doesn't have the holes in it like uh, having women going to the tomb first etc so let's try and put this all together and perhaps we can bear in mind some of those objections the context in which resurrection uh, is claimed is in one in which the resurrection is either unthinkable or far off in the future they did not expect something like this and that counts strongly against the idea of wishful thinking you know that they just hoped Jesus would rise from the dead it is strongly against the idea that they've copied the idea from somewhere else because there aren't any, anywhere else to copy it it was just a complete surprise and for that reason the fact that they ended up believing it well how can you explain that if it didn't really happen the attestation the, um, the witnesses are many and they are early that is good evidence for believing anything the uh, uh, the claims for the resurrection have got at least these three strands the people who saw Jesus the fact that his tomb was empty and the fact that it all fits in with scripture the people who were best placed to know that's the people near to the event who had the opportunity to check it out clearly believed it they were willing to die for it and again the idea of it being a conspiracy or made up would be a very strange thing to think that people were willing to die for something that they really knew was, was a lie uh, the alternative explanations require bigger if not enormous leaps of faith so the idea that it was a conspiracy or the so called swoon theory which says that Jesus didn't really die he was just sort of rendered unconscious and then you uh, he was losing blood he was um, uh, dehydrated and they put him in a cold cave and uh, after leaving him there for three days he was better and he managed to roll away the stone and uh, make his way into Jerusalem and appear to his disciples and when they saw him instead of saying oh you look awful we better get an ambulance they all said wow you are the son of God so that's the swoon theory and it requires an enormous leap of faith I think to believe that I once heard it said if you believe that you believe anything um, 
As we investigate what they actually said, uh, what the circumstances were, we should be open to having our worldview challenged. If we started off saying resurrection is so unlikely it can't happen, as we look at this evidence perhaps we should be prepared to be challenged. It doesn't usually happen. It's an extremely odd thing. But that's what Christianity is claiming. This is the one place where God really has raised somebody from the dead in this way. And our worldview ought to be challenged. If the resurrection is true, it is saying God has the solution to the problem of physical death. Somebody has. And uh, the solution is enmeshed in the Hebrew and Christian tradition and revelation and big picture. That's where the explanation lies. Jesus is validated, he is proven to be somebody, well, prophet actually, because he said he would rise from the dead and he did. Messiah, if you follow the connections. He is proved to be Lord because he is raised above everywhere else. Uh, and he's proved to be the Son of God himself as you follow the threads from it. Jesus is the spearhead then of promises to Israel because this is the place where God's promises are fulfilled. It's not the way they thought it was going to be but actually this is where his promises to Israel are fulfilled. And Jesus uh, is also the spearhead of the future of the human race. That if this is true, there is a new world coming, there is a new life coming and it is to be found in Jesus. Um, all sorts of wonderful um, things follow from that. And if we were to grasp this completely, we would say, this changes everything. Thank you. Right. Um, so we usually have time for questions or comments. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of the things that he, he uh, says in here, and I think he's right. That, uh, uh, yeah, I, I too, I'm not sure that I've completely got that idea. But he's saying that, um, let's say for, for like the thief on the cross, um, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So the thief on the cross died and he had life after death. Uh, he's with Christ in heaven but he is not raised from the dead yet uh, that's something that happens afterwards so if you like there's three stages uh, life, well four, life, death as an, as, a, as an instantaneous thing the continuing existence of this person life after death but resurrection follows after that so that's to distinguish it from being a ghost, from living on in people's hearts, from floating up into the sky. Because the, there's lots of, lots of religions believe those things, 
But the uniqueness of Christianity is that it's not saying that. It's saying life after life after death. Does that make it clearer? Well, you, you, you didn't because I did it very quickly. Um, that's the bit about this. Well, yes, it would take longer to, to do that. But the when it says Jesus rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and you say which scriptures? Um, I think there's a whole class of scriptures that talk about the future of Israel, uh, living in the land. Um, the new environment for Israel which uh, in New Testament terms are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's where this turnaround comes, that's where um, the exile is reversed so you, you can add to that to, and all, the, all the promises are yes and amen in, in Christ Jesus, so all the promises everything that is headed the Old Testament is headed towards finds its fulfilment in, in Jesus. So I'm saying that the, um, or I'm proposing that the whole class of um, promises to Abraham, promises to Moses, uh, promises to Joshua, um, Psalm 95, uh, there is a rest that remains to the people of God because if Joshua had led them into rest there wouldn't be a, a promise still, still held out. That uh, that Paul had in mind all those scriptures so I haven't argued it but I'm, I'm saying that that exists I would have thought that the Ezekiel well certainly the Ezekiel passage referred primarily to um, revival to resurrection I mean the, the vision of one of resurrection but the, it seems to me the meaning is, is that there is um, you know there's this Keep a boat, it seems to be totally dead. There is no, saying there is no spiritual life mm. left among the people. Mm. And yet God would breathe life back into the people. Yeah. So to me, it's more about, um, I say it's more about revival, or about regeneration than resurrection. I'm sure that's true, but the question is whether that exhausts the meaning of it. Because um, it does say, in its context, um, I will open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. So Ezekiel saw it in the context of these larger promises to Israel. Um, so I, I put it under the heading of hints because I think it's very tantalising that you have here resurrection promises to Israel uh, you know the work that is yet to come all put under the same in the same context Doesn't, I don't think it proves it but I think it, 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 it's suggested I suppose you have to follow up the theme in fact of every temple of life which does have both those aspects and Jesus talks about giving life now yes and yet obviously it also in some sense refers to resurrection at all as well so I suppose <coughs> you 
The Ezekiel one. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, um, I think. Well, I put it under the heading of hints, and I'll probably yeah. keep it that way. I mean, the the, the new ingredient that Jesus brought was a two-stage resurrection um, of which he is the first um, example uh, and yet it uh, linked up to the end of the world Well, I, I think that's the standard sort of Pharisee view. I mean, the fact that the Pharisees weren't wrong on, on everything, I mean, that, that, I think they had the right idea on that. That's, so that's a worldview that at the end of the world, there will actually be a resurrection coupled with judgment. Uh, and that's what we have to look forward to. But the, the thing that Jesus is doing is saying, well, I can bring the power of that uh, and the reality of that to bear now this minute because I'm here so Lazarus can get up now um, that's as I understand it the, the spectacular point of that Phil would that be that fourth stage you're referring to there's uh, you said when we die there's like an intermediate stage um, where our bodies mm. wouldn't be resurrected it would yeah. be on the last day when Jesus comes yeah. that's when we get our resurrected bodies that's correct right. yes yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and Jesus is, is sort of temporarily bringing the future into the present by raising Lazarus's physical body there and then. That's what he's claiming to do. Um. I, I just think it's, it's just thinking about it again, the amazingness of, of that aspect that he came alive It is. I mean, you can think about it from various points of view. Uh, I mean, this thing we're just thinking about it really from the um, fact, did it happen? Well, there's lots of evidence that it did. But you can think of it in terms of, uh, yeah, the wonder of it, the amazement of it, uh, which the hymns do. And how many 500 people saw it as well? Yeah. Uh, well, he, yes, he, Jesus said, go to Galilee and um, I will meet you there. Uh, so I presume that's where, where that happened. Yeah. Um, That's correct. Yes, I, I think the inconsistencies are more apparent than real. Uh, I, I don't think there are genuine um, 
contradictions, but there are apparent inconsistencies. And, and I found this helpful reading the book because I'd always wondered why that is. But I, I think it's, it, it makes a lot of sense to say here is bits, as we come to these parts of the Gospels, they have not felt it right to tinker with what people saw, to add things to it, to sort of spiritualise it or even to say anything devotional. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, they don't say, oh, isn't this wonderful? They just say what happened, don't they? And, uh, and that's because that is what happened. Um, it's almost like yeah. likening it really to a, a police report, an investigation. You know, you have several witnesses and they take notes down and from a witness's point of view, this is yeah. what you saw. Yeah. Not, no one witness in any in any particular case has seen everything. Oh yeah, that's right. And they've seen it from a different perspective. And the point of a police investigation is then to pull it all together to get the whole duty together. Yeah. And that's to me that kind of explanation helps me understand how actually they don't contradict, they're just different and in the end it does add to the validity of Yeah, I think it adds to the believability of it. I, I, I was once present at an armed robbery and um, I was asked to make a police statement and I could remember everything apart from where the uh, perpetrator went between going from here to there and I couldn't uh, I had no memory of that and I, so I didn't make it up I just said I don't know what happened and I went back to the scene of the crime later and I then realized that there was a pillar uh, in the in the bank and he'd gone round the back of the pillar and that's why I couldn't see him but if you'd Written, written it down, uh, you would have said, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about because he, he, he had no, you know, there's a glaring omission here. This obviously can't be true, but the omission was there because it was true. There's another witness from another part of the bank who said, yes, I saw him. He was yes. there. It doesn't mean, yes. Philip didn't say that, but that means it's not true. Yes. You just didn't see that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. The bits that are supposedly contradictory, I take it referring to the bits where yeah, that's the sort of thing. And sometimes they say there, were, there was one angel or one young man there, and sometimes it says there are two. I'm afraid I don't have them catalogued in my mind, but that's the, the sort of thing that people say. But it's so human, isn't it? I mean, I've also testified that, you know, in the case myself, but you know that under those situations, you don't remember Mm. of what you saw and therefore the validity that it happened yeah. but it's showing that they are human yeah. you know that someone says one went and another says two went it doesn't mean that because there is slight inconsistency that therefore it just couldn't have happened yeah. does it? it's just quite human to yeah. see it really. that's what I think yeah, yeah I agree
Yes, I, I think if, if, if we're honest, uh, there are questions that could legitimately be asked. Why are things in this order, in this gospel, in this order, in this gospel? Why is there this exact phrasing here? Not quite the same as that one there. But, um, I mean, there are answers to those, and um, uh, I don't think it affects the, the, the truth of, uh, of the records. Well, there's a number of factors, a number of things going on there. Um, yeah, yeah when, when I'm saying argument for the defence, I, I mean to say an argument to, to propose strongly um, that Christianity is true. So I suppose it's defending against the accusation that it's untrue. So, um, yeah, I don't mean... I don't, I, I, I mean to emphasise the strength of the argument rather than any sense of it being apologising for... Yeah, that, that's what I was no, trying to say. Me, but there yeah. is also a case for taking some step further. It could be that we have enough argument here to persuade others that, well, yes, you have a good, you know, you've explained that part of it so we can accept why you think that way. But there's also a next stage of it being so compelling that in fact it persuades others yeah. who... Yeah. Well, th that's, that brings in things like worldview, because uh, if, if people don't necessarily argue with complete uh, rationality, do they, or don't, don't listen to things with complete rationality, because if somebody is saying, well, God doesn't exist anyway, they could be saying in their minds, well, no matter what you tell me, I'm not going to believe it because God doesn't exist. And Jesus, I, I think it is Jesus who refers to this sort of thing when he says uh, it isn't a problem with the evidence. 
um, they have Moses and the law they, let them be, they should believe them and they won't believe even though somebody should rise from the dead so there's a sort of tension here um, that y you can present a strong argument very strongly and yet people will not believe it um, it, it isn't that there's a lack I mean that's what Jesus is saying it isn't that there's a lack of evidence it, there's a hardness in people's hearts it isn't that we shouldn't present arguments and um, uh, this book does that much better than I've done uh, and William Lane Craig does that much better than I've done but the, you know, whoever does it the, the raw material is the same which I'll try to present this evening and I think that, that's the, the strength of, of this guy he argues it very carefully and, and says actually there's no excuse for not believing it to be honest you know, whether you call yourself a historian or a theologian or whatever there is, there's no excuse for not believing it people will but it just goes to show sorry Steve that at the end of the day you can have a wonderfully formed argument with evidence but again if it's not a hard conviction you know the Dawkins is of this world unless the spirit of God touches it or whatever yes. it's never going to be a, a change of mind yes. 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 I think often people just tend to assume that people in the past are stupid because mm. they were. Mm. And, and one of the great evidence, that one of the great evidence of media preservation is the extraordinary impact it had at the time. Mm. Um, they, I mean, there, were, there were any number of messiahs and sects and cults and rabbis and teachers around, or, you know, many of them claimed to be the messiah or something, or something like that. Why is it that one took over the empire and the others didn't? Because they had this believable claim which authenticates, I and mean, that in the sense of the meaning of the resurrection, it authenticates Christ's own claim to be the resurrection. Just as when the, the man lowered to the roof, he says, oh, you know, your sins are forgiven. And, and then people object, well, how do I know that that's true? And Jesus says, okay, if you want to know that that's true, get up and walk. Mm. And, and the same thing happens, at least part of the meaning of the resurrection is that authenticates Jesus' claim to be the resurrection himself. I mean, anybody could say that. I could stand up on a soapbox and say, oh, I'm the resurrection of the life. And, you know, why would anybody believe me? But, uh, the, it's because there was this authentic claim that, that the Christian gospel had such an impact. You know, that there were 500 people who were to stand up and say, look, I'm sorry, I saw it happen. <laughs> so if you like, it's actually impossible that I was there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that sort of, all historians are faced with this issue. You've got um, Judaism going along as it does, and you suddenly have Christianity saying these things. What on earth made the difference? And it, uh, yeah, like you said, the only explanation that's going to fit is that it actually happened, that this resurrection, this thing that, I mean, they knew it was impossible. It isn't that they were you know, more gullible in those days. They knew that doesn't happen. The only reason they believed it was that it did. And of course, there's just the strength of time. If everything is hanging on the resurrection, you'd think there'd be many more people out to completely disprove it than there have been. I mean, mm. the whole faith is hanging on this yes. one thing. Yes. It still stood the test of time. That's true, yes, that's true. It would have been more easy to disprove if they hadn't been gone. I mean, the priests went to God on the tomb. 
sort of psychologically unbelievable, isn't it, that people who were so terrified would suddenly become so bold. Okay, well let's just draw to a conclusion. I mean, it's worth just pointing out that the, what's in this event is a, is a promise of what's yet to come. Uh, and I think that we do sometimes forget that. We talk about um, Christianity, we go, we're going to go to heaven and go to be with the Lord, which is far better. But the promises of a, of a whole new world, that this is the, the uh, first indication of the whole of creation being restored. And like the book of Revelation says, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, no more sorrow or sighing or mourning. Um, there will be human life on a, uh, on a level that none of us have ever experienced it. That's what's, that's what's being uh, foreshadowed, not foreshadowed, you know, you get the down payment of it. Um, that's just amazing. It really is uh, just amazing. If only we could grasp what is linked up with this, what is actually saying is in store for us. Well, let's stop there. I think perhaps we could pray. Let's, let's do that. We thank you, Lord, for these things that we've been able to think about this evening. We thank you that our faith is on a sure foundation. And we pray that we may each be strengthened in our thinking and in our um, living. We pray that even when we feel at our very lowest, that this may be something which is as bedrock for us. And we thank you for the great hope uh, that uh, the spirit who now lives within us will give life to our mortal bodies. We thank you for the great hope that when he comes, we shall see him for we shall be like him. We thank you for that promise that you make all things new. So uh, help us, we pray, to uh, believe these things and to live in them and to rejoice in them. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.